0: Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. So, what I want to do today is just kind of give you an overview. What is faith? It is a thing that we often think that we know, we think we understand it. And the truth is, is we probably do, but like cornflakes, we need to taste it again for the first time, over and over and over again. Because as you move forward in your relationship with God, your your faith, it gets deeper and it evolves and it changes and it looks different and it feels different. Same old faith, but it just is different over time. And so we're going to look at just 16 little verses here. We're going to look at Hebrews 11, 1 through 16. And I just want to tell you just, you know, What is faith? So the first three verses of our text, verses 1 through 3 in Hebrews 11, say, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So, here are the first three things I want you to understand about faith. First thing faith is not detached from reality, faith just has a different understanding of reality. Faith is expecting. It's not suspecting. When we look at that first verse and we see that it says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's not saying that faith is blind. It's not saying that faith sees what's not there. Faith is about seeing the not yet, not the not real. Does that make sense? Faith says Look, I'm not blind, I just happen to see what is invisible. But what is invisible is in fact there. So faith is is hearing the invisible God and moving according to his word. Faith is reasonable even when it seems to be beyond reason. Now I don't understand all that God is or all that God does, but I do know that someone beyond me has captured my heart, and someone in me draws me to him. I understand that the most excruciating experiences of my life only make sense because someone beautiful died on a cross for me. And so I wouldn't trade any scrape, any bruise, any bump any difficult situation, I wouldn't trade any of it because all of it led me to this place right here where I can tell you with absolute certainty that you might not see God, but God is real. And so I wouldn't trade anything that has gotten me to that point. I understand that mathematically my life is not supposed to add up to peace or joy or thanksgiving, or laughter, or abundance, and yet, here I am. Having gone through some really difficult things, you can still see all 36 of my teeth when I think about God, like my mother used to say, you don't know like I know what God has done. And so I understand that all of those things are true because I am his, Elkanah, God, the jealous one who says, you belong to me. So faith makes sense, even when it looks like nonsense to the world. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the things of God are understood by the spirit of God that lives in us, and without that spirit, all of this seems like so much silliness. So don't be too hard on the people that you know who don't know Jesus, who think it's silly that you live the way you live, or that you know the things you know because they can't see them. And so they may not pray to the invisible God that they would see what you see. And so that's your job, right? Is to see that they don't understand and not see them as enemy, but see them as somebody to be prayed for and somebody to be cared for. So not only do we have a different understanding of reality through our faith, but faith becomes the new definer of our identity. Hebrews 11.2 says, this is what the ancients were commended for. And what that means is by faith, the ancients or our ancestors obtained a good reputation, a testimony, a witness. So what they were known by is how they believed and what their faith was. Now, this part of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 through 12, is often called the hall of faith. And it's called that because there are examples of lots and lots of people who by faith lived their lives a particular and certain way. Now, my favorite of the people who lived by faith isn't actually in that list of people, though it is a pretty impressive list. My favorite is the guy who died on the cross next to Jesus, because first of all, let's just, let's just think about that for a second. Jesus is dying on a cross, and he knows why he's dying on a cross. And he's got this dude next to him, who's like, I'm dying on a cross, and I know why I'm dying on a cross, because I'm a bum, because I'm a thief, because I'm a criminal, because I did some stuff I should not, I should be up here on this cross. But that guy, that guy managed to stop dying long enough to look at Jesus and tell his friend, this guy shouldn't be up here. This guy should not be up here. So look, when you come into your kingdom, when, not if, I see your kingdom, I see it. When you come into that thing I cannot see, don't forget me. Look back and see me. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. I love this guy. I always imagined that if I were gonna preach a sermon at a senior citizen's home, I would talk to people who didn't have much longer to live on this earth and I'd say, what are you doing with the time you got left? Because this guy, this guy was amazing. Because I would have spent the last part of my life just crying about how much it hurt to be up on that cross because I believe I'm supposed to be up there. And yet, knowing that I'm supposed to be up there, making a conscious decision that my life will not be defined by the biggest mistake I ever made, I look at Jesus and I say, I need you to remember me. I don't deserve to be remembered, but I need you to remember me. I deserve to be up here, but I need you when you come into your kingdom to remember me. And so even though we don't know his name, we call him the thief on the cross, right? But the only reason we call him that is because we don't know his name. If his name was Fred or Howard or something like that, then we'd call him that. Because the thing that he's known for is the faith that caused him to say, when you come into your kingdom, don't forget me. Do not forget me. And so he is known by his faith. So 2,000 years after this guy dies, we're talking about him. We're not really talking about the other guy. We're talking about this guy. We only talk about the other guy as a way to contrast this guy. This guy's better than that guy. Because of his faith. And so you, you look at that and you go, that's amazing. Because now the identity of this man is attached to, shaped by, defined by his faith. And this is what the writer means to say by this, the ancients were commended Now, you would think that right after this that the writer would go straight into the examples of what it means to have faith. It's like, this is faith, and this is what you do when you have faith. And he would. He kind of almost does, but he takes a little stutter step that seems like a sidestep at verse 3 in Hebrews 11. And he says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is. Was visible. Now, that looks like a weird little tangent to me. But what it looked like to the Hebrew readers, to the people who understood what he was doing, it looks like what it actually was, which was a tool or a literary device that would recalibrate their thinking. Now, I don't have time to go into all of it, but I did geek out on it, so I've got to bring a little bit to you. So there's this, this structure in poetry called a chiasm, and all a chiasm is is it's a way to shape a thing so that you make a particular point, point. and the things that come before the center and come after the center kind of work their way toward the center. A really easy example would be Psalm 23. Most of us know Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd, etc., etc. The center of that poem or psalm is, For thou art with me. You are with me. Everything before that verse feeds into that. Everything after that verse, it's the same set of concepts or ideas, only they move outward instead of inward. So it kind of looks like this. Here's the center, here's the point, and it goes like this. This verse, verse 3, is actually structured like that. By faith we understand that the universe, what we see, was formed, shaped at God's command, the word of God, so that what is seen, shaped, was made out of what was not visible, what we see. So it just kind of works its way in into the voice of God or the word of God and works its way out from the word of God. Okay, that's all the geeking out you need to see and the reason is because that verse is there, not just as a tangent, but it's there to recalibrate their thinking and to give shape and lens to what follows. So now we have all of these examples. And if we had just gone from, okay, here's, you know, here's what faith is, here are some examples of faith, we would say, oh, we got to do that thing. But what it is, is he's telling them, no, what I need you to understand is the most important thing that you need to understand about faith is that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That that is what your faith is shaped by. What God says. What God declares. What God commands. This is what shapes your faith. And then you move You move out from there. Now he gets to the examples. Because what he's saying to these people who are going through, who are struggling, what you see is not all that there is. He's telling them that I understand that your problems seem like they're the boss of you, but God is in charge of your life. Your pain, it is speaking louder, but it cannot speak louder than your prayers. He's saying that giving in to that addiction is not better even though it feels easier than failing over and over and over again in in your journey toward recovery because the just man who's living by faith falls seven times but gets up eight. So he's saying, I need you to remember. And so it gives shape. That passage, that verse in verse 3, it gives shape. And so he says, if you allow what you see to shape your faith, then pretty soon you have allowed your circumstances to shape your hope. And it's what was happening to the Hebrew readers. Faith then became the substance of their resignation or their fear Faith became the substance of their exhaustion, the evidence of things staring you in the face. The evidence was a table full of bills with not enough month at the end of your money. And so, what happens is what happens with my girlfriend Joanne when she was her boys were young. They were 10, 12 years old, and they kept asking, I want a pair of sneakers, I want a jacket, I want a this, I want a that. And one day, she just, kept, she just kept saying no, she kept saying no, and they kept looking at her like, why are you like the no queen? You always say no about everything we want. And what she did was she brought them to the dining room table, and she put all the bills on the dining room table. And then she took her paycheck, and she put that on the table. And her son, Dwayne, looked at all those bills and looked at her paycheck, and he said, there's not enough. How do you pay all these bills with that paycheck? And she started talking to them about faith and started talking to them about God, started talking to them about the wisdom that came from the word of God and take care of this today and not take care of this on this day and wisdom in this area. But she began to explain to them and unpack what it meant to live her life and to raise three boys and one daughter by faith. And I mentioned Joanne because Joanne actually just sent me a picture of her very grown sons and daughter and her very grown grandchildren just this past week. I hadn't talked to her in a really long time. But the picture was just beautiful. And I looked at them and all of them just have this amazing smile on their face. But she's got kids who raise their kids by faith. And so the Hebrews needed a recalibration. They needed to shape their faith and they needed a reminder that what they could see was not the first or the last word on what their life was, but that the first and the last word belong to Alpha and Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, the God who spoke all things into existence, who spoke time into space and space into place, the God who began the good work that Paul says he will be faithful enough to complete, the one whose thoughts and ways, Isaiah says, are far above ours and far beyond us the one in whom we find our salvation and our rest. And not only does faith operate according to a different understanding of reality, and not only is faith now the definer of our identity, but also, most importantly, faith, especially when we're struggling, is not a function of information from God as much as it is the invitation of God. So without that recalibration in verse 3, we just go from this is faith and this is how you act. And these are the people who acted in faith. Just do what they did. But with it, we are asked to focus on God. Because God is inviting us in to hear his voice. And to hear who he is and to see who he is in the shape of the lives of these people that are our examples So we're invited into the stories, not just the narrative or information about, but the stories of Noah and Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah, instead of just a narrative. And why does this matter? Author Henry Nowen actually puts it really well. He says, one of the remarkable qualities of the story is that it creates space. We can dwell in a story, walk around, find our own place. The story confronts but does not oppress. The story inspires but does not manipulate. The story invites us to an encounter, a dialogue, a mutual sharing. As long as we have stories to tell each other, there is hope. As long as we can remind each other of the lives of men and women in whom the love of God becomes manifest, there is reason to move forward to new land in which new stories are hidden. That is why you tell someone's story, because you are inviting them to find their own lives in your story. And Jesus is inviting us to find his story in the stories that we read in scripture when Cheryl Baker tells us a story of something going on in her life. We are invited to find ourselves in that story because to find ourselves in her story is to find ourselves in Jesus' story. Because Cheryl can tell you all day where Jesus is in the story of her life. I can tell you the same thing. Joanne can tell you with her kids. You see the stories of people, and then it gives shape to your faith stories invite us to remember who we are that our stories are not just a collection of moments concerning us or events or good or bad experiences but we are a part of a larger story a kingdom story a love story by telling the stories of their ancestors the writer of hebrews is reminding those believers and by extension he's reminding all of us of their connection to god and God's connection to us. And it is a connection that is only realized or understood by faith. And then he says, and this is what faith looks like. And he begins with these stories. He starts with Abel. He says, by faith, Abel brought God to a better, brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. These are a people, the Hebrews, who were being persecuted And so he shares this story of Abel with them because he says to them that faith worships because God is worthy, not because we feel like it. And most of us look at the story of Cain and we think, well, how do we know why he didn't worship or how do we know that it wasn't about God? We know because of his reaction when God said, this is not great because when you do something for someone and then they're not as grateful as you wanted them to be, they don't say, what could I do to make it better? If it's about you, that's what they say. If it's about them, they get upset at you about the fact that you are not satisfied with what they gave, so this was about Cain. For Abel, it was about God. And so Abel's righteousness, the righteousness that came through his faith to worship, continues to speak for him. So when he died, God comes and he says, where is your brother Abel? And we always focus on the, am I my brother's keeper? But then God says, the the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Abel becomes the first martyr to faith. He becomes the, the first prophet because his blood spoke From the ground. He becomes the first person to point toward resurrection because even though he was dead, he was still alive. And Jesus, as a matter of fact, refers to him in Matthew as that righteous Abel and calls him a prophet along with Zechariah. And so then you move from there to Enoch, and it says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, when you look in the book of Genesis and you look at Enoch's story, you know two things. Enoch walked with God and Enoch lived. 365 days, I mean years, and then he died. That's all you find out. But what we find out in Hebrews here is that that walking with God meant earnestly seeking God. It meant chasing God. To say that a person walked with God meant that they lived for God. So whenever you saw that in the Bible, it meant that that person was living for God, that their steps were ordered by God, that they followed those steps according to what God would have them see. And so faith desires God, chases after God even when the world doesn't. Enoch is the great-grandfather of Noah who will come next. But it was during a time when the world was a bit of a mess. And as we know, God just decided he was going to do away with that bit of a mess. But Enoch walked during that time with God. And so faith walks with God, desires God, chases after God even when the whole world around you is not doing that. And so he moves from there to Noah. And so Noah, it says, by faith, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that is in keeping with his faith. So faith understands that not yet doesn't mean not real and acts on what's real. Noah lived his life acting on what he knew was real. Even though others didn't see it, he saw it. Why did he see it? Because God said it. God said, it's going to rain a lot. There's going to be a flood. I'm going to wipe this earth off, and you're going to need something to get into. And so he built this thing, and he must have looked like a crazy man while he was building this ark in this place where it had never flooded before, ever, And so he's building this thing, and it says that his faith, his faith condemned others because faith obeys God, understanding and knowing that its labor is not in vain. And so he condemns the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, what we find in the book of Peter, 2 Peter, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. And so some say that while Noah was building the ark, when people were walking by going, hey, dude, what you building? He was like, I'm building an ark because it's going to rain. Nobody listened to him. So some scholars believe that Noah preached righteousness even as he was acting righteous. And when the rains came, he and his family, who were the only ones who believed, went into this ark and were saved. And so then we move from there to Abraham. And it says in Hebrews, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as as countless as the sand on the seashore. Faith plays the long game. Faith plays the long game. There were so many parallels between the life of Abraham and his family and the people who were reading this letter to the Hebrews. Because not only were they they, they were given a promise, not a where, not a how, not a why, just a promise, not information, not a map, not an agenda, just a promise. They were given a, a promise, and that was it. And they had to live on that promise, feed on that promise, stand on that promise, trust that promise when they couldn't see anything else. Abraham, it says, was a stranger and a foreigner. They were in Rome, and there was no stability in the way they lived. Their rights could be taken away from them at a moment's notice. And so they were living with no security where they were. All they had to stand on was a promise. And his family followed him. I know some of you have been in situations where you are struggling and your kids are with you struggling, and there is some feel some kind of way. It would be one thing if it was just you that was struggling. It's another thing if it's somebody who is with you who is struggling as well, somebody who is following you who is struggling as well when you don't eat that they don't eat. It's hard. And so they handled that the same way, and it all looked very hopeless. But the key to waiting and playing the long game comes with Sarah. It says in verse 11, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Now, a lot of contrast has been made in the book of Genesis between how faithful Abraham and how, how Sarah laughed, and how Abraham was a guy who believed God, and Sarah was the person who just wasn't quite so sure about God. But let's just think about this for a second. It's one thing for Abraham to believe; it's another thing to be a woman who was a hundred years old, who was not only willing to sleep with her 127-year-old husband. Let's just face it; he's not fine anymore but to then carry a baby for nine months and have a baby for this man. Now, you can talk about Sarah all you want, but I'm sorry, I gotta give my girl some dap right here because I'm not sitting around just going, okay, come here, come on, because we're not gonna do this though, like, you know, there was no IVF, there was no, I mean, you gotta, this dude's gotta, it's like, come here, boy, just do your thing. <laughs> okay, now you're done. God, I hope it took. Because if it didn't, you got to do it again. Come here, boy. So Abraham's like, okay, let's go do this thing. And then you got to carry a baby for nine months. Let's give Sarah a hand. I'm just saying. Thank you to the writer of the book of Hebrews for bringing up my girl, Sarah. Because he even says, this dude, as good as dead, from him came all these descendants, us included. I'm just saying. I, I just needed to just like, you talk about a long game. That girl was, I'm just saying. She's, she's 100% that girl. But it says that she was able to do that because she considered him faithful who made the promise. The things we are willing to do because we consider him faithful Who made the promise. It's doable because I consider you faithful, God. I put up with this because I believe you are faithful, God. Not because I believe I'm so good at waiting. Not because I believe I'm so nice or so kind. But because I believe that God is faithful. And that he will do what he promised he would do. One of the things I love about these four examples, when you look at Abel, and then you look at Enoch, and then you look at Noah, and then you look at Abraham and Sarah, is that the pattern of them, they actually follow that pattern of that verse 3. So you start with, I can't see a thing. I don't know what's going on, but I'm in. And then you go from there to, I'm going to obey because I believe he's faithful. And then you go from there to, I'm going to walk with him and we're going to be intimate and that's going to keep me moving forward. And then you get to this place where I'm in the Holy of Holies and I worship because God is good. And so when you look at that, then you see that the reason he had verse three there was so that they would see the pattern and then he would show them the pattern in each of these lives because Faith worships, and faith chases and is intimate, and faith obeys, and faith moves even when it doesn't see anything. And so you see this amazing picture. But understand this, that our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. If we are trusting and believing in the one who spoke the world into being, then we're fine. If we're believing in the one who cannot lie and swore by himself, then we're in good shape. If we believe or we trust the one who was with us, our forerunner, the one who was God with us, who went ahead of us into the Holy of Holies and then said, come on, follow me, the firstborn of the redeemed, then we're in good shape. If we trust and believe in the one who lives in us, our comforter, our advocate, our Holy Spirit, then we're doing okay. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and the rest who follow in Hebrews, their stories are all a little different, but what they have in common was their willingness to move forward because their faith was in God. Where is your faith? Is your faith in God or is it in its expected outcome? Is your faith in God or is it in just your understanding of God? Because that, I promise you, will evolve and it will change over time. Is your faith in God or is it in your comfort, your circumstances, or your cash reserves? Is your faith in God or is it in just the possibility of relief from pain? Is your faith in God or is it in the world's image of God? How many times have you heard people say, well, if there's a God, then why is this happening? If there's a God, why not dot, dot, dot? And then that causes you to kind of like vacillate or question or worry about whether or not your faith is real. Is your faith in God or is your faith in your own prayers? Or in your faith, in your ability to hear God? Because you got Jesus up on a cross going, I don't hear you, I don't see you, I don't know where you are. I know one of the things that really kind of of shaped my, well reshaped my faith was when I learned that I was not going to be able to have children, physically have children. Anyone who knew me knew how much I loved kids. And I remember when the realization hit me, I sat to try and pray and what I said to God is, "I, I don't even know what to say to you right now. That's all I had. And faithful as he was, he put a song in me. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And so I wrote that in my journal. And I went to sleep. Because by faith, that was my prayer. And so while I cannot have kids, all kids have me. And so I think about just all of the amazing and good things that have come into my life through that ex. Excruciating experience. If I had kids, I'd be a very different person. If I had kids, I wouldn't watch out for yours. If I had kids, I wouldn't notice a child who is being abused or being mistreated because I'd be too busy taking care of my own, which would be my job. But I truly do believe—I don't know about anybody else, but I know God put me here. On this earth to notice children to love them in the moment that I have them to care for them and to look out for them because in that moment they might belong to you guys but they belong to me too and they belong to me more than you belong to me so if I see you mistreating your kid trust me I'm on the kid's side that's just how it is and so Abel worshiped God, Enoch chased after God, Noah obeyed God, and they were willing to move forward because they had a different understanding of reality, because they had a new definer of their identity, because they took God up on his invitation to worship, to chase, to obey. And so communion is the invitation for us to declare what we believe and to invite others to believe what we declare. When we take communion, we join Abraham's family, who it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16, all these people, meaning Abraham's family, were still living by faith, when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them afar off and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return there. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our faith makes us foreigners and strangers here because we long for something better and something more, something that was made possible because of the life that Jesus lived here on earth. Those of you who do not have your communion elements, raise your hand so that someone can bring them to you. We have some over here. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he blessed it. Over here, Andrew. And back there in the back. And right here. (laughs) Jesus took his bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. Over here? Yes? No? Okay. (laughs) I like it how people look at me like, is she looking at me? Yes, I'm looking at you. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Take and eat this. And likewise, he took the wine and told them, this is my blood, it is shed for you. Take and drink all of it. When we take communion, we declare that our hope is planted in a place that we cannot see. And the fruit we bear in our lives, we bear from this place that we cannot see. We bear our fruit not from how we were raised, We don't bear our fruit from where we are wounded, but rather where we are healed. We bear fruit from things that other people cannot see, so when they say, how could you, dot, 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 we have an answer for them. By faith, we worship because Abel's God is our God. And by faith, we walk because Enoch's God is our God. And by faith, we obey because Noah's God is our God. By faith, we believe. We refuse to turn back even when we don't see or don't know or don't understand the how or the why or the directions or the map because Abraham's God is our God. We invite and we encourage and we forgive and we love And we feed the hungry, and we remember the prisoner, and we notice and reach out to the stranger and the foreigners among us because our God is their God too. And so, as we have the band come up for praise and worship, and as we have the prayer team get at the ready on the sides over here, I want us to think of faith not just as something that's individual but as a thing that we all do collectively. Those who don't know Christ, make your way by faith up to one of these people who are praying and say, I want to know that. I want to trust that God. I want to know that Jesus. I believe in what I cannot see, that when he comes into his kingdom, I want him to remember me, and it really is that simple. When he comes into his kingdom, I want him to remember me. If that is the cry of your heart right now, find somebody—whether they're at these doors or somebody that you saw praise and work during praise and worship—somebody just, just tap them and say, "I want that to be the cry of my heart." that when he comes into his kingdom that he would simply remember me faith worships faith obeys faith chases after god faith plays the long game let's worship our god